We're going to start posting each podcast episode that you see on YouTube a week earlier on Patreon. So feel free to join for early access to all episodes. Plus, we're going to start doing bonus podcast episodes every week. So if you want to join Patreon, it's patreon.com slash concrete videos. Next week's episode is already posted there, so feel free to go check it out. Hello, world. Today's guest is the amazing John Sweeney. John is a writer, reporter, and journalist who famously tells the stories that power and money don't want told. He worked for the BBC for 17 years doing interviews with the likes of Donald Trump, Vladimir Putin, as well as one of the first investigative pieces exposing Scientology in 2007. His latest project is a six-episode series called Hunting Ghislaine, which investigates the life of Ghislaine Maxwell and tells how some of the richest and entitled people on the planet use their money and power to silence the abused. Hunting Ghislaine already hit number one on the UK Apple podcast charts, and we cover all of it in our following conversation. Without further ado, please enjoy this captivating conversation with John Sweeney. John, it's a pleasure to have you on here. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of your work. Uh, I actually recently came across you when I saw my friend Sean Atwood, aka the unemployed geography teacher, doing an interview with you on his YouTube channel. <laughs> yeah, they they uh, he went to prison, but somehow they let him out. I, I don't understand that. <laughs> I don't know why they would let that guy out of all people. <laughs> He looks, by the looks of him, he needs to go back. Yes, he's from Widnes, and I don't think Americans, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think of how to geographically uh, translate that, but I think it's like he's from Alabama, but not the nice <laughs> bits of Alabama. Uh, really? <laughs> it's a joke. It's a joke. He's a smart guy. Yeah, he's super, super sharp guy. I like him a lot. Um, so for people out there who don't know who you are, for my audience, can you... Uh, Give me a, a brief description of who is John Sweeney. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Oh, uh, yes and no. Uh, okay, quickly, I um, used to be a kind of war reporter for The Observer um, in, the, uh, in the 90s. Then in 2000, I joined the BBC and worked there for 17 years. Um, I helped free a number of uh, women who'd been falsely convicted of murdering their babies. Um, um, but I'm better known in the States uh, because... I went head to head with the Church of Scientology. I lost my temper 
uh, with the Church of Scientology. I'll do it now. You are not there for the beginning of the interview. You can see it on YouTube at 40 seconds. My little dog's run away. Sorry, uh, Bertie. Um, I, uh, the, the Church of Scientology, think that I'm a bigot, etc. blah, blah, blah. I think they're a cult. I went to um, North Korea undercover. I pretended to be an academic with an alcohol problem and the North Korean police didn't realize that we were doing it. We were, we were making a documentary. I challenged Pump about, uh, Pump, his name is President Trump, but Pump will do. I challenged him about his connections with organized crime in 2013. Donald Trump walked out on me. I challenged Vladimir Putin about the shooting down of MH17. Um, Putin held my gaze um, and I live to tell the tale. Um, and uh, 2019, I tried to do a panorama about a far right British guy called um, Tommy Robinson. That didn't work. I felt tricked and let down. I felt tricked by his side and let down by the BBC. So I left. And um, last year I made um, a podcast called Hunting Gillen, which is about Gillen Maxwell and her father, Robert Maxwell, and his malign influence upon her, and also about Gillen Maxwell and Jeffrey Epstein and so forth. That hit number one in the UK, Apple Podcast Charts, and now there is a book and a, um, and a TV series in the offing. So... Um, that's in a nutshell. I like a drink, and I'm not a member of the Church of Scientology. <laughs> that's a that's a great resume you got there. <clears throat> it's okay. Uh, I've just the other day, much more interestingly, I've just become a grandfather. Oh, really? Yeah, it's fantastic because, I mean, I didn't do anything. Well, I did something about 30 years ago. But uh, basically, you can go, hello, baby, da 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 and then, okay, here you are again. There you go. But but it's kind of sweet. You I get to deal with all the great the great benefits of a, of having a grandchild, but you don't have to deal with any of the hard work of raising a child. Yeah, and um, there's an old friend of mine, uh, Jens, a Danish guy. We used to muck around in war zones together. And Jens was quite an old guy with a beard. He looked like a Danish troll uh, or troll, and um, but a nice one. And we put him in the front of the car. So he, when we'd hit the checkpoints with the guys with guns, uh, they'd see the old guy first. And he looked like a kind of judge. So we managed to get through more often than not. But Jens said, I can remember this uh, back in the 90s, somewhere in Albania. Um, he said, um, the thing about grandchildren, they are the dessert of life. So mm. uh, that's kind of, anyway, um, that's sweet. Um, so there we are. I like that. That's a very good analogy. Yeah. So what lit this flame for you to become an investigative journalist? I've always, so my family is storytellers, uh, both sides, my dad's family, my mom's family. My mom was a, um, um, they're both from Liverpool. And um, my, um, my mom's mom, um, single mom, um, uh, my maternal grandfather, left the family pretty early on and she was left with a, a nice house with a lease in Liverpool in the centre of Liverpool and she ran um, a, a bed and breakfasts often for uh, actors 
just um, who were starting out in life, who were working in the local theatre in Liverpool. And uh, there's a guy, some of your listeners may know, there's a guy um, called Richard Bryars, who was an actor in the 70s in Britain, famous for something called The Good Life. And I bumped into him once on doing a story uh, when I worked for The Observer, and um, when he was making a film, and he said, oh, yes, Mrs. Owen. Anyway, um, my grandma had one of her... Um, uh, there's a point of this story, Danny, I'm getting there eventually. Uh, one of my... Um, one of her uh, tenants was a sculptor, very posh, and he did nudes, uh, sculpted nudes, often men. And one day, um, my granny went up, this is long before I was born, when I dusted the sculptor, uh, sculpture and something a bit fell off. And this guy, let's call him uh, Mr. Plumley, um, Mr. Plumley uh, came back. Um, and said, Mrs. Owen, have you been interfering with my nude? And what had happened was she had knocked off the penis of this nude and then glued it back the wrong way round. <laughs> now, this is, a, this is my Auntie Margaret's favourite story. And the reason I tell it you is that I just love good stories on both sides of the family, both the Sweeney's and the Owen's love good stories and I've got that in my genes but there's something else too which is it the stories that are most interesting are the stories that power and money don't want told that when um, the stories and I'm competitive about it when somebody rich and powerful says you shut up all the trouble that's what gets me out of bed and, or gets me out of the pub in the evening because I want to, I want to, I want to tell those stories, and 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 so I kind of, I would always think of myself more of a storyteller, who's ended up telling stories powerful people don't want told than an investigative journalist. Investigative journalist has got too many syllables in it, and it sounds a bit high and mighty, but I'm a storyteller, and really I kind of, I just want to be in the in bed or in the pub. But the moment somebody says, you shut up, the Church of Scientology says to former members, you shut up, or the North Korean secret police, you know, say, um, um, create this bizarre fantasy of what their dark tyranny is, that kind of gets me going, and then off I go. What is your view, then, uh, I know you have a... a a long history working with institutions like the BBC and, and more, um, you know, very large media institutions in the UK. What, what is your view right now on the current state of media technology and social media being a journalist? Well, um, oh, by the way, the, the thing I forgot to mention, uh, which I should do, uh, listeners, is, um, um, viewers, is that I'm also a writer. Um, and the other day, uh, so I've written uh, 12 books, eight nonfiction, one about Scientology, one about North Korea, four novels. Um, one of them, the latest, whatever, let me find it, here we go, um, is uh, The Useful Idiot, which is, um, probably reads upside down, but anyway, you get the drift. And that's about Stalinism and fake news in 1933. 
And really, it's a story of two reporters in 1933 in Moscow. One of them was Walter Durante, who worked for the New York Times, originally from Liverpool, an Englishman, who ended up working for the New York Times. And he, for example, got a great scoop where he managed to interview Stalin. But of course, you don't get to interview Stalin unless you play goody two-shoes. And what Walter Durante did was he told a great lie, which was there was no famine in the Soviet Union in 33. And there was and maybe as many as seven million people died. Now, this is fake news back in 33. And there was another reporter called Gareth Jones, and he told the truth about the famine. And he was shot dead in China two years later in 35, I believe, by the uh, NKVD, which who then became the KGB. Those are the people, the secret police that Vladimir Putin worked for. They're now called the FSB. Same old shit, I would say. So the problem of, of misinformation, of lies, of big, big lies, that's not new. There's a great French writer, Gustave Flaubert, who once said, our ignorance of history makes us slander our own times. Things have always been like this. And that's kind of true, or rather that's very true. But nevertheless, I found the rise and rise of social media and the, and the Wild West nature of it scary and troubling. Um, I'm not a Trumpist or whatever you call him, the former guy, as Joe Biden calls him. But I, I thought that, that there is a kind of unhorsing of reason and logic and, and respect for facts that have gone, um, that have ridden along with the, the rise and rise of social media. And that's become frightening. And as I said, in my introduction a bit in the last um, 2019, I tried to do this story about Tommy uh, Robinson, the far-right guy in Britain, and I got clobbered on social media um, by his supporters, um, so much so that effectively I've, I have a presence on Facebook, but it's very minimal and it's not active. I do, um, uh, I'm on Twitter a lot at uh, John Sweeney Raw, R-O-A-R. They've gone away uh, from my life um, most of the time. But the reason they did that was that what happened was that we had a good investigation into Tommy Robinson, him um, turning a, a bunch of the German far right in Bavaria. Um, for too long, the German people have lived under the guilt of Adolf Hitler. Now, you don't say that. That's a foolish thing to say. Um, it's a dangerous thing to say, in particular to that German far right audience in Bavaria. Don't do that. The BBC didn't run our film, and so all that happened was I kept on getting death threats and being threatened and being humiliated, and I wasn't allowed by my big organisation to fight back. It was really, really difficult. Uh, eventually, I left. The moment I left, I put up a video in which I got, I'm going to swear now. Is oh, What's your policy on swearing? Swear as much as you want. Okay, well, I said um, I'll give you the, the piece of camera. In my view, and these are not the views of the BBC, Tommy Robinson, you're a Nazi cunt. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. Now, the benefit of that, this is I'm drinking Italian red, 
you, by the way, you will not, you will like, this is a beautiful wine from Italy. You're drinking something disgusting in a can. Terrible. And that's not, and, and that's why I worry about American civilization. Yeah, it's either this or Jack Daniels. The uh, Yeah, I mean, that's okay um, as a kind of tranquilizer. But this is nice. Anyway, never mind that. Um, stop being a wine snob, John. Uh, so <laughs> the, it was horrible being attacked on social media in this way. The moment I put that video out, and it's got something like, um, I did it on Twitter, two minutes, and it's got something like half a million views or more. The heat went from Tommy Robinson's supporters because these people can smell fear. And I wanted, it was a simple message. I'm not afraid of you. And I, I had the clip of Robinson in Germany talking about Adolf Hitler in the way that he did in the film. And, and so that, um, the pressure from that crazy far-right community went away because they could tell that actually it wasn't me who was afraid of them it was my bosses at the bbc but i fundamentally do not believe that people um i when i post stuff on twitter everybody knows it's me i am john sweeney raw i am me and i don't think anonymity causes is a thing for good because it means that i mean i know there are various arguments for it but essentially it means that you can get a pile on from people who can behave dreadfully because they're doing it behind a curtain we don't know who they are and i don't think that's good i don't think it's good for the public square i don't think it's good for for democracy or the rule of law and some of these people aren't american or british they're russian you know the russian bots now we know this or they're Chinese and they can be North Korean or they can be anybody. I don't know who they are. So um, I, you know, that's a problem. Um, all of this feels less heated now that Joe won. By the way, I told you my, about my, uh, my granddaughter. Uh, her name's Shida. And she, um, she's a smart cookie. So in March, she bet 500 quid on Joe Biden to win. Really? Nigel Farage, by the way, bet £10,000 on Trump to win. And um, and uh, I'm not a, Shyla's not a rich, she wasn't born at that moment, but being an astute um, person, she bet the money anyway. I don't know how she did it, but she bet it and she won um, uh, £750. Then uh, I know John Ossoff, the Democrat. Uh, contender in, um, in Georgia. I've been on a drink with him in London when he was working in London and both him and um, his friend, like, they were working in a TV company together. I was a friend of his friend, but we went on the drink and said, you've got to run, you've got to run, you've got to run for Senator. And I thought, you know, China must think that actually John Ossoff's going to win. So I put another 500 quid on um, Ossoff to win and Shiloh won 650 quid on that. So essentially, um, before she was born, she could retire. <laughs> <laughs> wow. But it, it's um, so uh, that's a joke, but I worry about the unhorsing of fact. At the same time, I also get it. Um, 
in part because my mum and dad were Liverpool working class and I was, I'm middle class, um, not working class. I'm using British class terms here. You're going to have to translate them for your audience. But I also get it that there were way too many posh people at the BBC who had a rather, there's a, there's a, um, a comic uh, from my childhood called the Beano, and they had a character in it called Lord Snooty, who wore a top hat. And there are too many Lord Snooty types in the media, in the mainstream media, in governments, in politics and the civil service. In, um, and they look down on people who, who ended up voting for Trump and voting for Brexit. Now, I wouldn't vote for Trump if I was American and I didn't vote for Brexit. But I get it that these there are many, many people who are good people, who are lovely people, who if I... I could share a drink or a chat with them wherever they were and I would enjoy their company and I know that if something bad happened they would do the right thing. I'm confident of that who have I think in my view have been duped and so we've got to listen to those people who voted for Brexit and who voted for Trump and at the same time uh, and we've got to be critical why aren't we reflecting them. Now what's happening at the moment is the media is I think it's reflecting um, things like Black Lives Matter and anxieties about um, 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 uh, tra trans um, and so forth and so on. But at the same time, I'm, I am uncomfortable that nearly all of my colleagues on the Newsnight, on the BBC shows I worked on, Newsnight and Panorama, were posh. Um, and didn't get what ordinary people would be thinking, the majority of ordinary people, and there's an anxiety about that. Now, weirdly, I think that COVID has helped reset some of that balance. I do think that 2016 was a poison year. And what's happened with COVID is we get it that society matters, that working with others matters, that some of the lowest paid people in our societies have been the um, um, have been the best of us. I'm talking about the you know the Amazon delivery people, my bin men, who I just these days when they empty my bins, I, I say thank you. All of that stuff. Um, I'm a Londoner. That's kind of new civility. So there's something. So there was a big anxiety in 2016, 2017, 2018. Part of that is my knowledge of, 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 of the Kremlin, of what's happening, because I've met Putin, of I can see that Putin is manipulating things behind the scenes. And that led me to real disquiet. Uh, at the same time, I think that, um, that Joe... Joe's got something. Now in Britain, we're still carrying on with Brexit. I don't think it's going to work. I think it's a silly mistake to put kind of nationalism above um, the best possible trade deal you could get. That's my view. I also think that the, the media um, have been too elitist for too long. And there is, and there isn't a proper correction on that. So but at the moment, the problem which the media has created, um, in, in part for itself, they haven't properly addressed it. Um, 
they're addressing some of the easier things, but not some of the other stuff, which is that if everybody, so for example, in British terms, there would be hardly anybody um, where I worked who, were, who was on benefit, who, who knew family members who were on benefit because everybody went to Oxbridge and all that kind of stuff. Mm. One of my friends is a guy called Owen Phillips who is very, very good, who did a fantastic series um, for the BBC about Rupert Murdoch. He's Welsh working class and he feels this much more passionately than I do. But I had like hardly any friends at the BBC who were working class because there were hardly any working class people at the BBC. I kind of sought them out because they were more fun and cleverer and smarter because they'd driven, they'd, they'd risen with nothing, very little. I'm going on too much. No, 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 not at all. Um, well, it seems now, I mean- Where are you? So that I know, where are oh, you? I'm in Florida. Right. Um, Have you ever been to Florida? Florida is the- Have you ever been to Mar-a-Lago? I've heard of Mar-a-Lago. Yes, I have. Um, I've been to Florida. At some point, we were doing some crazy thing for Panorama where you you get so embedded in the story, you you don't know, um, uh, you forget what's happening. And we um, we flew into a kind of Cat 5 hurricane and we ended up staying in a hotel suite where J-Lo would normally stay for nothing because there were no hotels and we managed to anyway da, 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 da. so yeah i've been to florida yeah <laughs> florida's a florida's a decent place it's all right is it is there snow are you um, no snow are you you're not living in an igloo at the moment no i i have never seen snow in florida i was born here and i've been here for my entire life still never seen snow here the, but, um, but texas is covered though yeah texas because texas is continent i'm mean, it's colder in the inland. It's it's away from the sea. Yeah. It's a, a te- yeah inland. It's a little bit colder. Plus, uh, it's quite a bit farther north than where I'm in Florida. I'm right. in like I'm in like the middle of Florida on the uh, yeah. on the Gulf Coast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, are you near? Um, are you a member of the Church of Scientology? I need to ask it's, you. I could hit a golf ball and hit the uh, the main building on Fort Harrison. Oh wow! Well, I've well, had well, well. I, I've had uh, a guy by the name you, of Mike Rinder. On. Have you answered the question? Are you a member of the church? I am not a member of the church. Okay, right, good, good, good. Okay, we can carry on talking. Yeah. <laughs> so Mike Rinder is, you know, we're great friends, Mike and I. He's been on my podcast. Yeah. So Mike um, left. He owes me a lot. Mike left the Church of Scientology because of me. I would say. I don't know. If you, have you have you seen have you seen the film? we made which is on youtube i i have not seen the film that you guys made uh the i've seen uh the hbo documentary going clear yes so and by the way if you're if people are super nutty about scientology they can uh, watch the two films which i think are flying around on youtube one of which is called the first one is scientology and me in which i scream the second is um uh scientology secrets of the stars Mike's uh, big in that. And then I've written a book called uh, Scientology Church of Fear, which you can get via Amazon. And the um, uh, and we, maybe we can do some linky things so you, people can see this stuff. Absolutely. Um, but so what happens is that, excuse me, when I screamed at Scientology, because they made me 
go nuts. There were two PR men who were on my case the whole time. Tommy Davis is the guy I screamed at directly, but standing next to him, looking grey and ashen the whole time, was Mike Rinder. And Mike Rinder had been in the hole, and when I arrived in the States, um, David Miscavige, the Pope of Scientology, got him out of the hole to handle me, to deal with me. Mike Rinder was in that video when you're screaming at the guy? It is, he is on the edge. If you, if you watch the whole... 30-minute documentary. Okay. So Mike Rinder is the other is the other minder. And what happened was that um essentially there were dozens of them. There was only a normal BBC thing. BBC, by the way, uh, I bitch about it all the time. It's a lovely thing. I still believe in it and I still pay my license fee. Um there was a brilliant producer called Sarah Mole. And there was a, a fantastic um, cameraman called Bill Brown. Uh, the, the production was from BBC Northern Ireland. And so um, um, Bill's uh, from Belfast and all of the BBC Northern Irish cameramen are fantastically brave because they do in the 70s and 80s, they did riots all the time. So that's their upbringing. They're really, really good. Anyway, um, Sarah has a plan, which is, she's from Essex, I'm going to um, uh, do her accent for you. Hey, John, you've seen Jurassic Park, ain't ya? <laughs> yes, I have, Sarah. So, in Jurassic Park, there's that bit, isn't there, where there's a goat, and it's tethered, and then the T-Rex comes and gets it. Right then, you can bleat, can't ya? So, my job was to be the tethered goat. And what we would do, because she'd analysed it, she'd watched Scientology attack people like me who were trying to investigate them. And what they would do was ambush somebody like me in the middle of the night, um, which Scientology did, when you'd put the camera away. So we were defenceless. What happened was that Sarah made it a rule that whenever we were out, I had... Um, the two of us, uh, Bill had his big camera and Sarah had a small camera and they were fully charged and on at all times. And if the big camera wasn't charged, Bill put it down because we're going for a meal at the very end of the day. Sarah would have the little small camera in case something happened. This is before mobile phones really got going, 2007. And uh, before there were phones and video and mobile phones. So also, I had two sound mics on me um, with two backpacks in case one failed. By the way, going to the loo with two bloody sound mics, it's like it's like something nightmare. Seen, it's like a scene in Chernobyl. Um, it's just like bloody annoying. Anyway, those are the rules because she knew that they would come for us. And lo and behold, they came for us at midnight at the hotel. But we filmed it. And, and I... Um, I'm good at this stuff. And I and I fired back and I said, listen, you've been spying on this. And this is a bit creepy, frankly. Um, anyway, it's it, it was a fantastic battle. Um, and I was the tethered goat. And eventually I got sick of the fuckers. And the tethered goat turned into a tethered rhino and I fucking charged them. <laughs> That's the shout and all of that. The BBC thought about sacking me. But then they thought, well, sod it, let's go for it. This is before Twitter. 
2007, the film goes out, and then you get hundreds and hundreds of emails from ex-members of the church who fall in love with me. Who um, And two emails I love in particular. One is, Mr. Sweeney, you're my hero. But then I am the vice president of the Royal College of Psychiatry because psychiatrists get it in the net from Scientology, and therefore I became a pin-up of international psychiatry because I had to go at Scientology. It's so bonkers. Tell a quick story. When I was in trouble, real psychological trouble, psychiatric trouble, with the Tommy Robertson attacks and not being allowed to defend myself by the BBC, eventually I had to go sick and I saw a psychiatrist. And the psychiatrist said, before we start, Mr Sweeney, I really enjoyed your film about Scientology. Then the BBC hired a second psychiatrist, a professor of psychiatry, who was going to check my psychiatrist, who said that I'd been put under impossible work stress and therefore they couldn't sack me in the way they were trying to sack me. And um, my, uh, the professor of psychiatry said, Mr Sweeney, before we start, I just wanted to say I really liked your film about Scientology. What do you want me to write? <laughs> So, that's amazing uh, it's true um the um it's true i said the high-pitched voice i don't know why uh, i'm i'm somebody who kind of lies all the time apart from when i go high pitch it's true uh, but, but um no that's none of those things are true actually some anyway never mind um getting back to the main event so scientology was completely weird mindfuck it's an evil cult um they, if you don't know, I'm going to tell you anyway. Um, I'm well aware. That if they, um, they believe um, that um, 75 million years ago, <coughs> an evil uh, space alien lord called Lord Senu brought space aliens to Earth and um, killed them with H-bombs in volcanoes. But the spiritual remains of those space aliens called thetans have stuck to us and caused madness and inhumanity etc etc and only scientology will clear you of this and if i tell anybody this i will die and they may die because of the power of the story and frankly i've been doing little else since 2007 in any pub in london or manchester or wherever i am in the world uh, somebody sits me down and then I start telling them about Scientology. And here I am. I'm still very much alive. So I am living proof that Scientology is a load of bollocks. I found and it. Go ahead. <laughs> I found it so fascinating that Mike Render actually spent time with L. Ron Hubbard. And did he? He didn't tell me that, but he yeah, was in it then. He, he was actually still... met him. Yeah, he didn't. Uh, he didn't tell me that. Anyway, what happened was, at one point, I because we had hours and hours and hours of them filming us, me filming them. They're trying to, they're trying to break me, and to break me, they bring me in a bit into into the Scientology tent, and then break me. And Sarah and Bill, my colleagues, um, are they film everything? We've got so much in the can we start having uh, we we kind of stop filming and one of these moments i ask uh tommy davis and mike rinder 
could I interview David Miscavige? He, by the way, is the Pope of Scientology, but unlike, for example, the Pope in Rome, David Miscavige is alleged, he denies it, to go around smacking people. He would like, he'd get pissed off with me, he'd smack me if I was a member of the church. That's what people, Mike Rinder says that happened to him. Bang, bang, bang. And um, um, I say, I'd like to interview David Miscavige. I want to interview your Pope. And Mike Rinder says, well, you're not going to do that, John. Because, And I said, why not? Because you're an asshole. At which point, Sarah, the Essex girl, who has got a wonderful sense of humor, goes, <laughs> and she loses it, just starts giggling. And Bill, who's a much tough, uh, 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 who is uh, Sarah, they're both tough. But uh, Bill, who's a tough-looking guy, starts to laugh too. And both of them are corpsing because of... Uh, I'm not interviewing Scientology's Pope because I'm an asshole. But Mike Rinder realised that although my team were mocking me, taking the piss out of me, as we say in English English, they also kind of had my back and they kind of, you know, we loved each other, we liked each other and we were a gang. And in our gang, the um the two people behind the camera could take the piss out of me could mock me and and we still liked each other it was still good fun it didn't matter it was normal but in his gang he had to express fealty to the pope he had to he could never mock him he could never he could never give he could never uh, be a normal human being and i think that was the moment when Mike realised he'd rather be in the BBC's gang than in the Scientology gang, after a lot of heartbreak for Mike, because it meant breaking with his family, uh, who were still inside it, his mother, his sister, his brother, his kids, he left, and three years later he sat down and I interviewed him, and he told me everything. What was frustrating at the time was the power of the BBC, oh, oh, sorry, the British libel laws meant that we couldn't put in the smacking allegations. And it was actually Alex Gibney and Lawrence Wright who did that story um, in, uh, in Going Clear. But I'm in the Going Clear documentary, which is so properly unfair, so rigorous about Scientology. They have them shouting at me, but not me shouting at them, which strikes me as being a bit funny. But, but there we go. Anyway, you... Um, if people are interested, they should chase those films uh, we made for Panorama. The first one we did was in 2007. So although Going Clear got bigger punches, we, um, uh, we attacked Scientology first. And of that, I'm very proud. I, I'm going to watch that. Anyway, so Mike, um, in, um, having broken from Scientology, organized a kind of event in Florida um, in the Gulf Coast uh, where you could hit a golf uh, up the road from um, um, Scientology. Um, what's it called? St. Petersburg. Round Clear, there. Clearwater, yeah. yeah. Um, up the road from there in, an, in a hotel and there was about a hundred ex-members of the Church of Scientology. This is very early on and uh, me and my uh, then missus were split up but we we're still great friends. But we were invited out and it was the most they paid for us to go there and it felt like being inside Galaxy Quest. 
in the, <laughs> that there were the fans who were ex-members of the Church of Scientology. And the thing is, I mean, I didn't do this, but had I charged five dollars for the, to do the shout, you were not there. I would have cleaned up because everybody wanted a video of me or a picture of me going, you were not there. And they kind of treated me like a god. And I had to say, listen, I'm not, you've, you've, you've left the God, you know, the crazy God. And by the way, I was brought up a Catholic. I get religious belief. I understand it. I'm still a bit of a Catholic myself, not very much, but a bit. So I don't want to knock other people's religious belief. I don't think Scientology is a religion. I think it's a money-making device. Like Ponzi scheme. It, it's a Ponzi scheme, or it's like the Mafia, or the Coca-Cola Corporation, or, or all three. Um, but it's not a, a, a it's not a religion in my book. Never mind. But there was something slightly cultish about me being the uh, about me being Scientology's devil. Uh, but Mike invited me to his wedding, um, and and I and I and that really is for Mike this um, heavy duty Scientologist as he was, and he was still for a time he believed in the works of Hubbard, but didn't like the church the thing and, and and i think now he's out out but for a time anyway in the middle of all of this there am i at his bloody wedding and it was wonderful and good I, there's something i'm, I'm going to struggle to make a, a a serious point here that um for a time in particular in 2016 2017 with the rise of islamic state um, in the Middle East and terrible uh, atrocities um, in Europe, in London. I reported on all five of them, I think, for the, um, or four of them for, um, for the BBC. There was a counter uh, attack by, uh, against a mosque in North London uh, by a, a right-wing fruitcake, and there were attacks in the States too as well. How do you deal with people who've been brainwashed? into believing that we are the enemy. And Scientology is fundamentally um, silly in my view. And, the, and although it has a ton of money, it doesn't have many adherents. However, I think it's important to study it and to understand it because if we can work out how to unbrainwash members of the Church of Scientology, we might be able to work out how to unbrainwash people who are adherents of Islamic State or who believe that North Korea is the one, and people like the North Korean military believe that North Korea is wonderful. How do we unlock that brainwashing mm -hmm. is important. And, and, and that's why psychologically it's interesting. Now, the guy who's done a, a ton of thinking about this is a wonderful American military psychiatrist originally called Professor Robert Lifton who wrote the first book about brainwashing, um, using that term, thought reform of brainwashing. And he'd been the military psychiatrist called in to treat American GIs who'd been brainwashed by the Chinese communists, the Maoists, in, um, at the end of the um, Korean Civil War. So these guys, American GIs had been caught and been brainwashed and his job was to try and treat them and reverse that. And he came away and um, wrote this book called uh, Thought Reform of Brainwashing, which is fascinating. 
then Richard Condon, I think, read that book and then wrote The Manchurian Candidate, which is uh, was uh, a great and successful novel about a brainwashed candidate for presidency. And then um, that obviously was turned into a film with Frank Sinatra. Then it lay, um, lay low for a bit. And then the Israelis re reversioned that story to somebody who'd been kidnapped and brainwashed by Hezbollah, turning into an Israeli um, um, politician. And an Israeli soldier had been brainwashed. And then Homeland came along and pinched that story from the Israeli um, drama and reversioned it again. All of which tells you that there are no new plots in Hollywood, but also <laughs> that, that, that this, this is a, a big thing. Uh, and um, I, I, so that Scientology isn't just a wacky, vicious money thing it also might help you unlock stuff. One of the things that Lifton uh, talks about, and I believe this passionately, is that, is that the authoritarian mind or the totalitarian mind abhors humour. It has no tolerance for mockery or a sense of humour. And therefore, you've got to like and admire and support tolerance and mockery in our leaders and in our own in our own doings right uh, right whatever and, and 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 part of the reason i think as i said that mike rinder left the scientology gang and joined the slightly rubbish bbc panorama gang was because we had more fun and my colleagues could could mock me and nothing would happen and i laughed along too right and that, that is a, a, a central thing. There's, um, and, and this, I mean, there's all sorts of kind of fascinating military edges to this. So one of my heroes is um, General Bill Slim, who was the, um, the general in charge of the Forgotten Army, the British in Burma, the Japanese attacks, and they, um, this, these, uh, and the problem is all the money and all the resources were for the Battle of Europe, uh, defeating the Nazis, or the battle in the Pacific, where the Americans are smashing the Japanese Navy. There's no money and there's no resources in Burma, but that's where Bill Slim is. And they have the longest retreat in the history of the British Army, a thousand miles backwards, and then the longest advance in the history of the British Army, a thousand miles forwards. And Bill ends up they build their own, um, there are huge rivers a thousand yards across in Burma and they built, ended up building so many boats that had more ships than the Royal Navy and they had elephants. And I've written a book, don't go away. Um, this is uh, my elephant book, Elephant Moon. This is sold 200,000 copies. Uh, and wow. I, I love the story of what's, uh, there's a bunch of elephant teak men, i.e. these are teak foresters who use elephants. They chop down the trees and then the elephants push them down the rivers and they own the, um, the sawmill um, um, down the, um, towards the capital. 
and basically these massive teak logs go down the river and when they get to the sawmill they're stopped and they're chopped up so that the uh, the elephant men um spend their entire lives up in the up in the forests chopping down teak trees elephants pushing them along and what happens is the japanese attack and then the elephants are incredibly valuable because they can work in the jungle that no one else can and they're escaping the Japanese on the way to India when this, they come across a bus full of mixed race kids from an orphanage who are the sons and daughters, mainly the daughters of British um, engineers, oil engineers, teak men, and their Burmese comfort women, and American oil engineers, a lot of oil in Burma, now Myanmar. But this is the human stain of empire. These are embarrassing kids. And so they haven't been flown or taken ship to the safety of India. They've left because they've got no money and the people running the orphanage have got no money. And therefore they've, managed, they've had to walk out and they're all gonna die. And then suddenly this herd of working teak elephant arrive and the Japanese have sunk the last ferry. So there's no way they can cross the last river, the Chinwin, to get to the safety of India. And their teachers with them says, well, have you got a ferry? And the elephant man in my book, his real name is Bill, in my book I called him Sam. Uh, the elephant man says, well, we don't need a ferry because the children can ride on the back of the elephants. But we're only taking you across the river. Anyway, um, they then, between the... Um, um, then on the other side of the river, there's a range of mountains. And I chuck in a Nazi in the, in the story because Hollywood likes Nazis. Make it a film, somebody. Anyway. Throw <laughs> a couple Nazis. <laughs> they, but um, Bill Slim had this rule, returning to the point, that anybody could say anything in his officer groups, the O groups, they had a plan uh, to defeat the Japanese and uh, build a block. This is what we're going to do. Bill set it out. All his colonels said, yes, that's going to be great. All the majors said, yes. The lowliest officers, officer there, a weather lieutenant, put up his hand and said, it's going to rain, i.e. this plan will not work. And Bill writes in his book, Defeat into Victory, I wanted to shoot him. <laughs> But he doesn't. And he puts that story in to, to show a sense of humor about his own, about how his own ambition was holed by the common sense of a lowly officer. But Bill allowed that officer to tell him the truth and also made a joke about it, which means that's the better way to organize things. Because disaster strikes when stuff gets blocked up, when people dare not say to the, to the boss, there's trouble. One of the things, so to answer your question, I believe in a free media. I believe in free speech, but I believe in facts too as well. And I believe that, that our job is to call power to account. And I was troubled and I'm troubled by the, the crazy um, insanity of much online stuff. And I think it should be policed in, for example, 
that people should only be who they are. If you post stuff on social media, you, we need to know who you are. No, 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 um, no anonymous. That's that's over for me. Um, so I was thinking uh, the other day, it's a friend of mine. Um, his daughter is doing a an exam and wanted to ask me about Putin's invasion of Crimea, seizing a bit of land in um, 2014. And this is a no-no because the settlement after the Second World War is we don't pinch anybody's land again. You can break up a country like Yugoslavia into bits. Yugoslavia doesn't get it doesn't invade Italy. That's that's a no-no. And in 2014, Putin broke that rule. And this, uh, my friend's um, uh, daughter wanted to know, I was kind of asking, and the thing is, I was, I, I was in Ukraine later that summer, not for the spring, but I was there in the summer, and I reported on the shooting down of MH17, and I ended up doorstepping Putin. But why did this happen? One of the reasons I think it happened is because that Putin has ended up, um, <laughs> some say, uh, killing off um, an independent media, by which I mean people like Anna Politivskaya ended up being shot dead on his birthday. Now, he probably didn't order that, somebody else did, but whoever ordered it has never been found. The, the killers or some people who have been accused of killing it have ended up being locked up, but not the people who commissioned the murder. The reason... Now, this was a mistake. At the moment, the sanctions for the Kremlin are like 2% of the Russian economy, $100, million, $100 billion, a hit, but it's 2% of GDP. It's, not, it's a slap on the wrist. It's not a big thing. But nevertheless, the West aren't going to back down on this. With Joe Biden and the White House, there's more trouble for Trump, I think, down the track. The reason... Putin made this mistake is that there's nobody telling him don't do this boss because it's a mistake because he switched off the free media the reason why Trump lost it in the end even though as I've said earlier that I, I get it that Trump spoke to an awful lot of the left behind people and that they felt a kind of gut belief and faith in him at the end Trump lost it because he started to believe his own propaganda and there was nobody in his network who was saying don't do this boss because you're attacking another pillar of the American constitution don't do this mm. now in the early days weirdly people like Steve Bannon who I abhor but he's got a you know he's a he had the cojones he would argue with Trump he would argue with Ivanka and all of that. He would, and, and then the other people around him, the generals, they were good people. They were smart people like Mattis, his first, um, uh, the oil man, I've forgotten his name, first um, of the State Department. They were big people. Rex, um, Rex Guy Tillerson, I think his name was. Yeah, yeah Rex Tillerson. And then who was the, um, who was his, um, whatever you call it, the, uh, his chief of staff, who was um, a military guy as well, there was a general who was pretty good. His name escapes me right now. Anyway, but you know those people. Mm -hmm. By the end, they'd all gone. And you want 
you want, if you're in power, you need people to say, boss, don't do this because mm. it's a mistake. And Putin had shot those people, literally, perhaps, metaphorically, certainly, um, the Kremlin denies any wrongdoing. So what you've got is a failure of that, of that function. And I think that happened with late Trump as well. There's a moment in particular after the election where I think he blows it for constitutional conservatives, for Republicans who wanted to vote for him. And that, by the way, is when my granddaughter, Shiloh, not yet born, bet 500 quid on, um, on, um, on John Ossoff to win Georgia, because I couldn't imagine good Republicans really wanting to vote for Trump because he was going so crazy. What was that moment? Did he say something? I think, I think it was, he, it was, he was taped calling up the guy in charge of fair voting, of, of proper voting, saying we need 11,000 votes. I mean, it was like a mobster. It was Al Capone stuff. Um, what, do you, what do you think about him getting banned from Twitter? I was in favor of it. I am in favor of it because, um, I, hold on, as ever, I want to tell a story. I'm an old man, I drink too much. I have to get up at four o'clock in the morning, go for a piss. What I would do, I couldn't get to sleep. I'd go onto Twitter and then Trump had said something, you know, he played kissy kissy with Kim Jong-un. I've been to North Korea. It's a dark, evil place. Kim Jong-un is a tyrant and a sadist. He is, there is no value in being, in playing nicey-nicey with this guy. And Trump didn't do it. That was appalling. The way he palled around with Putin, appalling. The way he diminished and demeaned and was horrible to his democratic allies in Europe and in the United Kingdom was horrible, horrible, horrible. These days, and I couldn't sleep because of, I was sick with worry. Now that Trump is out um, and off Twitter, I wake up at four in the morning, I go for a piss, I uh, switch on Twitter, nothing is happening, I switch it off, I go to sleep again. I wake up at eight o'clock thinking, crikey, World War Three hasn't happened, it's okay. I walk the dog and have breakfast. I mean, like, 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 so that there was something mad about it. Now, I believe in free speech. Um, I didn't and by the way, I mean this, I thought about suing uh, Tommy Robinson, uh, the far right guy who made my life a misery and effectively um, ended my career at the BBC, although BBC managers should have played it differently in my view. But I didn't sue him and I don't want him to be shut down completely, but I felt very grateful um, when he was um, when Facebook cut him off shortly after he put out a video attacking me, because it meant the heat I was getting from his anonymous supporters um, was switched off. I don't think people have a right to abuse other people. Um, and much of what Tommy Robinson said about me was utterly unreasonable and untrue. They have a right to do that to anonymous supporters and the second wave of the anonymous supporters hating you is terrifying. I don't, that doesn't square with me with, with having free speech. Now, this is difficult because 
I do think that an elitist and um, too rich, too posh in English English media stop listening to working class people in Britain and the same problem applied in Europe and the United States. Part of this is the, the change in the nature of our societies in the, for example, the Labour Party used to represent the working class in a very clear way and the Conservatives used, used to represent people with money. Culturally in Britain, that switched so that what happens now is the Conservatives are doing a lot better with the working class on cultural issues. The working class is much smaller. It's, it used to be four or maybe five out of 10 Brits, and now it's something like two out of 10 Brits. Basically what you've got is six out of 10 Brits are middle-class in a, in a big band, but they're middle-class. And then you've got 20% who are poor and maybe, um, or actually maybe seven out of 10 are middle-class. And then you've got 10% are very rich and then 20% are, are, are poor. But those poor people and the people in particular who haven't had a, who are undereducated or haven't had a good education, they are moving to the right um, in a way that's happening. And you can see also that happen in, in Europe. Um, I know Italy best, I suppose, um, because I go there as often as I can because the food and wine is so wonderful. Um, and you see this again, and uh, this pattern repeating and repeating and repeating. So I feel that um, the media and the, um, the people who, who, who run places have kind, kind of stopped listening to the left behind. And I don't like that. And that's a problem. Mm. And at the same time, the right and the far right have seized the Wild West and have gone for it, this opportunity. It feels that switching off Trump the telling lies about the election was a necessary thing. Um, he can still appeal, you know, he can still say whatever he wants and the media will get the story out. But this, the electricity um, of him being able to, um, to whip up his supporters, that's gone. And I think that's fundamentally a good thing. I know, by the way, I'm a huge admirer of Alexei Navalny. Who? Alexei Navalny is the Russian, the effective leader of the opposition who's in prison at the moment. Do you know who he is? Alexei no, no okay. I don't know who he is. So, uh, so um, you've got to, um, Danny, uh, he's a hero. You've got to, um, uh, uh, he's put out, so what happened to him was he, um, doesn't like Putin and he's after him and he's getting traction. Putin's been in power for 20 years. There are Russian voters now, 18, 19, 20 year olds, who have only known Vladimir Putin in power and that's boring. And also Russia isn't doing very well because it is fundamentally horribly corrupt and Alexei Navalny calls Vladimir Putin the czar of corruption. I've met Navalny a couple of times. His supporters get stabbed and tasered and beaten up, um, but Navalny keeps on going for it. Last year, he was poisoned 
he was on a plane, started screaming, fell into a coma. The pilot landed the plane in Siberia. Doctors raced out, jabbed him with the right stuff. And uh, he was flown to Germany, where the German doc doctors discovered he'd been poisoned by Novichok. Novichok is the nerve agent. You cannot buy this in a shop. It's created by the Russian secret states, and they poisoned this guy. He survived. He's got balls of steel, and he went back to Russia and has just been arrested. And he's banged up again. He's serving three years, or they've given him three years, basically on trumped-up charges. He's inside for two days when a video he's made pops up. He made it in Germany, and it's about Putin's palace. He says, watch the video, and it's fantastic. It's in Russian, but subtitled in English. And it's like two hours long, and it's wonderful stuff. But Putin has built himself, or Putin's cronies have built him a billion pound, like a one point, one and a half, sorry, a $1.5 billion palace on the sh uh, shores of the Black Sea. I've seen with pictures. All, with, with toilet brushes that are worth $700. Crazy, absolutely crazy. With a with a hooker room, i.e. a room where you can smoke Hubble bubble pipes with a stripper's pole in it. And you can see the detail of it. And the point is that it's created, it's been paid for by his um, rich scum oligarchs. But you know it's his because you can't go there. And if you try and go there, you get arrested by the secret police. And there's a two-mile exclusion zone. Ships can't go near it because they might be a, a terrorist thing. It's the president's palace. This video goes up two days after Navalny's ar uh, arrested because they've held it back. And 120 million people have watched it on YouTube. So it's it's really big. Now, this is Naval Navalny. Now, Putin never calls Navalny by his name, kind of like Lord Voldemort. And I've actually met Navalny, and I said, and on my Twitter, I'm, I'm on Twitter, at John Sweeney Raw, and um, I there's a film called Taking on Putin, which is somewhere on YouTube. But um, I actually challenge, um, uh, oh, I say to Navalny, why, why, does, um, why doesn't he name you? And he said, because I'm Lord Voldemort. The thing about Navalny, he's very, very funny. Um, he's got a real wit. And uh, he's got a mate who's a bit fat. And Navalny's, he's, he's, um, he's got a beautiful wife, two lovely kids. Um, but he's got a fat sidekick um, who, whose name I've forgotten, who, who does the kind of grungy bits. And there's one moment where Navalny's sitting, um, he talks very intensely directly to camera, it's obviously in a nice cafe somewhere in Germany where he's um, um, talking all this stuff and it's very, very funny. And then it cuts to his fat mate on a little dinghy driving to We're going to the palace. <laughs> so it's, it's genuinely really, really funny and, um, and, and brave as fuck. So... Um, people say, what the fuck did Navalny go back to Russia? Because they tried to kill him. They tried to kill him. And the thing is, they could kill him in Germany. They could kill him in Britain. They could kill him in the States. So he, he's daring them to kill him. 
and he's incredibly brave. Um, but Navalny has said, I don't agree with Twitter switching off Trump. Really? Because Navalny needs um, needs social media because he's avoiding the the mainstream media. The mainstream media in Russia uh, won't deal with him because it's controlled by the Kremlin. The difference for me is the attack on the capital is a line in the sand. Mm. And basically, as I said earlier, but the problem is that Trump lost the smart, brave people around him and said, don't do this, boss, because it's it's a crossing of the line. And I can't, do not think it's right to do this, in particular, if your supporters are anonymous. Because then then what's, what, what means is that if you're, you're, you're trying to, how can you defend democracy if people threaten to kill you anonymously in this space? Mm. So, um, I don't believe in free speech the whole way, but I'm saying I also note with some anxiety that Navalny disagrees with me. But I think Russia is, and the United States are two different places. So that uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm putting forward the counter-argument, but I'm sticking with I'm pleased that, um, that Trump has kicked off Twitter. Didn't you, you've, you've done at least one extensive interview with Trump personally, right? I've done, I've, um, yeah. And that was regarding some sort of hotel he was building in Scotland. Yeah, he's, he's such a cunt. Uh, <laughs> can I say that? Yeah. He's I, a twat. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finish. A, I've, I've got a bottle of Italian Amarone, which I'm going to bring up because uh, this interview is going to last forever. I'm going to go grab my bottle of tequila too. So yeah, shall I, hold on. Let's do this now. Let's um, Trump's a cunt. Hold that thought. I'm going to get the bottle. Perfect. There you go. What do you have there? There's an advertising uh, Amarone <laughs> della Valpolicella um, Cantina di Negra. And this is from um, somewhere beautiful in Italy. Negra di Val, Valpolicella, Italia. Doesn't say where. It's really nice. Can you get that in the United States? Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but I would, um, yes, um, I'm sure you can. Or well, anyway, um, it's. Here's what I'm drinking. You're drinking um, the George Clooney tequila. It's called Casamigos. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, he's good, George. Um, he, um, Lake Como really is very beautiful. Um, I'm trying to, I'm writing, I'm trying to write a novel about a, um, an Englishman who parachuted into Lake Como, uh, during the war and, um, was arrested. Um, he, he was being brought up in Italian, in Italy and spoke fluent, uh, Italian, but, um, the British dropped him in on a full moon, 1943, and the Americans had just bombed Milan. So all the rich people had gone, left Milan to free the bombs and gone to their villas around Lake Como. And they'd watched, like 10,000 of them would watch this poor British spy <laughs> being parachuted and everybody's watching him and he's instantly arrested. Oh and um, he's beaten up, slap, slap, slap. And then in my novel, um, 
he gets his first good coffee he's had because he's been in, in Britain since 1939. He gets his first good coffee for four years. And, oh, God, this is good. And there's a beautiful woman that says, you know, Hello, how are you? And, and he's like, this is it. This is Italy. You know, I get beaten up. I get a beautiful coffee, beautiful woman. I miss Italy so much. <laughs> and that's, oh, that's uh, incredible. La Bella Italia. I've missed it. So I must uh, work out um, what I missed it. So is. I'm trying to learn Il mio italiano pessimo francamente. My Italian's rubbish, frankly. <laughs> um, so Trump. So the first of all, one should always be fair. Trump is one of those people who are instantly and obviously hard, ruthless, and you've got to admire the power of the verbal punch they pack. Like he's not a very intelligent speaker, but the way he speaks, he like dumbs it down for people. He like he the way he speaks, he he hits a primal part of your brain that just makes certain people react very strongly. Yes, you're dealing with a primeval monster who who takes you back into the slime from whence we came. And that works. He speaks from the gut to the gut. And if you don't look after yourself with him, he'll hurt you. And because you know that, it's right to fear him. The problem is managing your fear while you're dealing with him. Because he can say something so vicious that it, that it can silence you. Or you're left gasping. And I think what happened with Hillary was that Hillary never quite got through. There's a beautiful moment thinking of my uh, grand unborn grand uh, unborn granddaughter's bet of five hundred quid on Joe to win. When Joe says to him, "Will you just shut up, man?" Remember in the first debate, mm -hmm. and that was a kind of wonderful moment because it showed like Joe's. Well, I was, you know, uh, Joe's obviously, he's going on a bit. His granddaddy can't remember where the keys to the garage are. He's a bit gaga, but he's not, he's not a patsy. One of my favorite movies, um, is, now, how have I got the right title? The Last Show with Art Carney. Have you seen it? No. A wonderful movie. Set in the, it's in the 70s. And it's about Art Carney, who's a wonderful actor, who in real life had a limp. And so he limps. And he's an old private eye. And he speaks in 1940s Raymond Chandler, the big sleep style slang. Um, and he, there's a crazy hippie woman who comes to him with some stuff about a cat. But behind the, uh, the cat story, something dark is happening and in this kind of moment of, of poetry and beauty the old private eye um slowly untangles the darkness the gangsters and becomes a hero even though he's old he's got something wrong with him um he's got some kind of bad stomach ulcer and every now and he collapses and at one point, the baddies beat him up and he coughs blood. 
And then at a critical moment, the baddies have got the upper hand and he collapses. But he's mucking about and he's got his gun and he says, listen, son, you're in trouble. And it's kind of beautiful. And there was a moment, the moment when Joe said, listen, ma'am, won't you shut up? Was the Art Carney moment in the in that debate, mm. um, and it was, and the thing about Joe was that Joe isn't money, and he kind of gets standing up for himself and standing up for the people he represents. So there was, although Grandad is a bit, uh, is far too old and doesn't know where he's left the keys, he will, he's up for a fight. That was a sweet moment. Mm. But Trump's very impressive. The other thing which is squalid about Trump, and I hate it, was his transactionalism. If, um, like, if I were to meet you, um, if I, you know, if the world gets good again and I can fly uh, to Florida, and be amazing, uh, we could sit here and drink wine together. Yeah, well, well, what I'd do is, um, uh, to be honest, I'd get a bottle of Italian red and I sit on the park bench opposite the Church of Scientology. And I'd go for a bit, then then I'd grow up. Then we'd go, uh, we'd hire. Um, we should do this anyway. We'd hire a soft top convertible, drive around the nice bits of Florida, find a lovely bar by the beach. I'd go for a great big long swim because I like doing that. And then and then we'd come back and eat uh, ribs and drink good wine and talk about the world. And. That sounds amazing. I wouldn't, at any point, if I paid for all of that because I've got lots of money, I don't, I'm just fantasizing, I wouldn't think for a second that I owned you because I paid it, paid for it. Trump would. So what happened with Trump was that when we arrived, we were going to interview him on the Tuesday, but on the Saturday or the Sunday, we went to, is it Bedminster, his golf resort in uh, New Jersey? I'm not sure the name of it. He's got a golf resort in New Jersey. I think it's called Bedminster or something like this. Um, and um, it's the Mar-a-Lago of New Jersey. And um, he was great in terms of TV. He was great. He said, hi, John. Uh, great to meet you. They're looking after you. It's wonderful. Really good. He gave me a, uh, um, a Trump hat. Not make America grump again, but Trump golf uh, red hat. Fantastic. Um, very useful because I've got a bald head. I used to drive it around. I used to wear it when I uh, drove my soft top VW Beetle around. I don't do that anymore, lest somebody kill me. But um, I, uh, <laughs> anyway, I um, I ended up um, we're in a golf buggy uh, together, and um, he he said, "Okay, John," and um, he gives me a lift, and he goes off a June like really quite uh, a high speed and you can hear me i'm on the the end of the um of the capacity of my sound mic feeding back to the camera but as we disappear and the light is framed so we're dying uh, the light is dying but as the light dies and we head off into the sunset you can clearly uh, clearly hear me say i'm a bit worried about the driver because this fucking lunatic is going to kill me. Um, and that was Trump. And then... It was just your, you and him in the golf cart? Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. It's on Panorama. It's a BBC Panorama. Uh, you know, Trump, the Kremlin candidate, question mark. And um, and that's me. And, and then he he organized for us to go up in his Trump helicopter and fly around the golf course, all of which is wonderful pictures. He's not there. He's doing something else. But but what this means is that when I come down to sit and interview him, he thinks he owns me. Now, you know, I've been in a golf buggy before. I don't like golf. I think it ruins a, a good walk. Um, but um, I have been in a golf buggy and I've been in lots of helicopters, oftentimes with the American Marines and the American Army in northern Iraq and all sorts of fucking weird and uh, crazy places. But the idea that you can buy my soul for a ride in a golf buggy and a ride in a helicopter, that's just foolish. And the story I was there to ask him about was that he'd, he'd um, built this golf course in, the, uh, in Scotland, but he'd fallen out with um, his Scottish neighbours because he treated them appallingly. Um, and there's a problem with the way Trump treats ordinary people who get in his way. That was the purpose of the film, but actually what we were doing was riding on the back of a, of a previous film by, made by a, a very good filmmaker whose name I think is Anthony Baxter. And basically it was, we were borrowing this other guy's story with some of his footage, we interviewed him, and I found that was a bit boring. Happy to do the story, but it didn't get my storytelling juices going because somebody else's, it's somebody else's story. However, I looked into Trump and I found that he had um, one of the people close to him was this guy called Felix Sater, a Russian born gangster who back in the day in Wall Street in the 90s had fallen out with a fellow broker and had smashed a margarita glass and then put the stem of the of the of the glass into this guy's neck, giving him 110 stitches and the guy goes inside. When he's inside, then he teams up with the Gambinos for a pump and dump scam worth $40 million, pumping up a share price, which is shit. And then they, they pull out, other suckers come in, then they pull out. Then, then he does something, um, Soviet Union falls, and he ends up doing, uh, this is Felix Sater, he ends up working, I think, for the agency, buying... Stinger missiles from the um, um, in Afghanistan using cutouts or whatever. He does something which means that they um, um, they let him out earlier, and then he ends up in the Trump Organization. But this guy is a gangster, thick with organized crime. That the the, the the CIA might have used him uh, to do some skullduggery on their behalf. That's good on him it doesn't make him an honest or reliable business partner at all and I hit Trump with that why didn't you say to Felix Sater who has got a Trump card a Trump organization card Felix Sater and a Trump organization email address of memory serves why didn't you say to Felix Sater you're connected with a mafia you're fired this is on YouTube and Trump says John maybe you're thick but in the United States, we have a, a contract 
and you can't break the contract. Now, actually, down the track, I did a film for BBC Newsnight. This is on YouTube, and it's called Trump and the Mob, or Trump and his links with the mob, in which I find a clause in the contract he'd signed with Felix Sater, um, um, or the, the business entity he was engaged with, and um, Sater was part of it, which is called the bad boy clause, that if Sater had been a bad boy, then he'd have to cough that up, and it, it was his responsibility to cough. So there was perfectly good legal contractual reasons for Trump to do that. Trump called me thick. What does that mean, Maybe, thick? Thick means stupid. Okay. Maybe you're thick, John, said Trump to me. All of my colleagues on Panorama love this moment. And so whenever we go for a beer, they always, you know, there's always some fucking point where somebody says, well, maybe you're thick, John. <laughs> and you can watch it. And I don't, I don't, I don't say anything, but you can tell from my face that I don't like it because, you know, I wear glasses. I've written 12 books. I'm clever. Um, I mean, I don't have to like, uh, I, I, you know, I went to the London School of Economics. I'm not that clever, but I'm not thick. Anyway, never mind. But the point <laughs> is that Trump has worked out perfectly how to hit me. Um, but I, um, this isn't my first rodeo. And I roll with it. And then I say, um, but I, I press him on it. And then Trump says, listen, I've got to go to a meeting. He's made it up. There isn't a meeting. He's just getting out because he doesn't like me. And he comes over to, to, hold, uh, to shake my hand. And I put my hand up like this. And I say, one last question. Why did you buy your concrete from Fat Tony Salerno? Fat Tony was the Gambino and the Genovese crime family's man in Manhattan. And if you bought concrete back in the day, you bought it from Fat Tony, or else you would have trouble with the mob. And Trump's building is entirely concrete. He bought his concrete from Fat Tony. He, the evidence suggests, shares a lawyer, Roy Cohn, um, with Fat Tony. Fat Tony was in the mob. There's a wonderful, uh, great reporter for Village Voice called Wayne Barrett, who I met in um, 2016 in the spring. And uh, Wayne had, um, had always been on Trump's case back in the 80s. Fantastic guy. And I asked Wayne, and this is in the video, um, um, Trump and his links with the mob, it's on YouTube. And I asked um, Wayne about Fat Tony, and Wayne said, Fat Tony, Fat Tony was fat. <laughs> it's a great piece of telly. Honestly, it's lovely. Wayne told me this story, which is yucky, but I'm going to tell it uh, to you um, because uh, why not? Um, Wayne found out that Trump was, uh, you know, the, one of his casinos got blown up the other day. There's video of the Trump casino on YouTube, on, on, on Twitter, being blown up. Um, may How did I miss this? Okay, anyway. Um, Which casino? One of the Trump 
casinos in Atlantic City. Okay. Maybe, by the way, it, it, um, I've watched it. I didn't watch it closely. The date could be wrong, but never mind. They've had to... Somebody in... It looked like recently, uh, but it could have been a couple of years back, have blown up a Trump casino because it was abandoned and lost money. When one of his casinos was opened, Wayne had been running stories about Trump getting in bed with the New Jersey mafia who owned the land. So that Trump effectively had to get uh, to pay off the New Jersey uh, mafia to start this casino. And then in those days, the New Jersey Mafia, based in Philly, was more murderous than the New York Mafia in the 80s, common ground. So Wayne is reporting that Trump's getting in bed with some very nasty people indeed, big, dirty killers, organized crime. Trump hates this, hates it. And Wayne Barrett is on his hate list. Wayne is not invited to the, um, the launch of the casino. Wayne hires a young researcher called Tim O'Brien, who has ended up working for Bloomberg and working uh, for Joe, um, for Joe Biden, and also being a great reporter for, I think, um, the Wash Post for a bit or whatever. Anyway, Tim O'Brien is Wayne's assistant this point he's like he's 22 23 just out of college he's on the inside and between them they work it out and basically um tim o'brien goes to a door and lets um wayne in the back way so he can get into um the um this party there's trump all his women and the moment you know trump sees wayne Wayne is arrested by Trump security, who are Atlantic City police officers working moonlighting for the Trump organization. They lock him up and because of the trespass, basically they can lock him up for the night and they have to let him go in the morning. That night, Wayne tells me in 2016 when he's dying of cancer, he spends the entire night handcuffed, chained to a radiator, and there's another prisoner in the cell, which is a police holding cell, not a, okay. And the other guy is mentally ill and spends the entire night masturbating. Trump would have known that because it's, he owns the Atlantic City Police Department. That's Wayne Barrett's allegation, or concern deny any wrongdoing. So what Trump is doing is he's deliberately getting to Wayne by organizing this, or rather the cops would have known this nutter and would have told Trump about it to make Trump enjoy that moment of sadism. And when I read Mary Trump, his aunt's book about Donald Trump, um, or his, his Mary Trump, um, Mary Trump is Trump's niece, that's right. But, uh, who's a psychologist, but she's fallen out with him because Trump was horribly cruel to her father, Fred Trump Jr. This married completely with the story that Wayne told me, that there is something brutal and nasty and disgusting about Donald Trump. So I felt 
as well as the fact that my unborn granddaughter won 1300 pounds <laughs> on trump's loss i felt an enormous sense of relief when the great john king finally uh, you know there's that moment in the pennsylvania recount where suddenly the numbers switched and and i thought thank god for that whatever time it was in the morning in london uh, i i opened like the most like a, a fantastically expensive bottle of italian red <laughs> very nice so um but also this is democracy um now i don't i and i think trump has lost it there's a moment when uh, i was talking about putin the putin the problem is that putin has shot metaphorically certainly literally he would deny it shot the free media in Russia and therefore there aren't people around him who are telling him the truth who have got the courage and the status to say listen boss you're wrong or for him to read that stuff and believe it so an honest media is vital to the to the proper working of power in the 21st century and the problem is that social media disorganized and much of it anonymous creates an enormous fog machine so you can't see what the truth is mm. so that's a problem and it's turned everyone into a journalist kind of it's yes. like there, there's no there's no barrier to entry like traditional media like for instance for you to go work for the bbc that's not easy However, it's much easier to go grab a video camera and go out and start recording yourself, investigating whatever you want, posting it on YouTube and Twitter. Yes. Now, some of that is good, but much of it is bad. Secondly, there's another thing, which is that, that we've all become not just uh, our own reporters, but actually worse, our own news editors. And there are occasionally things, I, mean, I've, I, uh, I read my Twitter um, uh, well, and, and I've got 60,000, 59,000 followers at the moment. Um, but basically, if there are people out there who put up videos which are horrible, and I uh, either block or mute them because I don't want to see that. Um, now, I've seen people um, with their eyes blown out by the force of artillery, I've seen dead children in the mountains of northern Iraq. Um, I've seen a baby with its arm shot off in a massacre in Africa. I've seen horrible things. I don't want to see that on my computer in the normal way. I don't want to see that. And, and, and I've seen terrible things as a war reporter. So I know what I'm doing there in terms of editing that out. So there is a problem, and I don't think, I mean, the people who own um, certainly uh, Facebook, Google, Twitter, profited from Tommy Robinson supporters threatening to kill me, and those threats went from online to offline, i.e. real people came up to me when I was um, in trouble with the BBC not putting out our film, which would defend or at least say, here's the context, folks. Um, and they, um, this is when, when the online hate goes offline, i.e. real world. It's terrifying. So what happened to me was 
I, I, I knew there was a, a wonderful Irish reporter called Lara McKee, who was, I think, 27, 28, 29, not, not yet 30, certainly. And she was shot dead by the real IRA at a confrontation with the police in Derry in Northern Ireland. And whoever shot her meant was pointing at the police lines. She just happened to be standing next to the police. So it was an accident manslaughter but on the other hand it was criminal manslaughter in that if you fire a gun at that sort of range at a line of police officers and other people you could well kill somebody that's what happened lara was murdered killed manslaughter not murder um i'm 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 on gardening leave the bbc won't put out this uh, film we've done on tommy robertson i'm still getting threats from these anonymous people I go at my own expense, I fly out to Belfast because um, I'd met Lara McKee actually at the Perugia Journalism Festival in Italy, which is a wonderful event. And I uh, and I really liked it. I, I took the piss out of, she was with a, a, a British lefty guy called Owen Jones, who I don't agree with on much stuff, but he he's good fun and uh, we were ribbing each other. She said something very funny. I said, come and join us and we, uh, the, there was a gang, I had a little gang, and they, they joined us, and it was great fun. Now she's dead. I go to her funeral. Most of my friends who are new from the media are at the um, are filming this event, and I still, I'm in a mess psychologically. So I stand at the very back, and, and I tweet a little bit about, you know, the, the crowd clapping uh, her funeral cortege as it leaves, which places me at Belfast Catholic Cathedral in Belfast at this moment. I tweet um, the coffin going in and the coffin leaving. So, and one of Tommy Robinson's supporters comes and finds me as I'm leaving the funeral at the end and attacks me uh, verbally, not physically, in a way which I find absolutely shocking and terrifying. So, the problem I've got with, uh, with, with big tech is that they're making money from advertising out of stuff that's caused me enormous psychological distress for no, um, uh, and, and that is wrong. And I have no way of stopping that or sanctioning them because they're not publishers. They're not responsible for the content, blah, blah, blah. And I don't like that. Mm. So I want to see the internet police properly. I am listening to and wary of the warning from Navalny. Um, I'm also, um, but at the same time, I don't think that Trump um, should be allowed to go on Twitter after he he started living, putting out stuff that which is in a dark fantasy world. So we got to police it. Are you aware of the the section that I believe was introduced by it was a long time ago. I, I want to say it was 10 years ago. Uh, it was some sort of a copyright protection that blanketed companies like Facebook and YouTube and Twitter from from this kind of stuff from from people independent people publishing their content it would it would sort of yeah guard these platforms from legal 
liability for, for either copyright or for, you know, stuff like you're talking about now. Are, are you familiar with this, with this specific? Yeah, yeah. And there is a, I've forgotten the lingo. It's like preposition, it's proposition 237 or. Yeah, I can't remember it either. Yeah, yeah, but, but, but essentially, I don't think it's, um, it, it needs to be policed. How we do it, I don't know. How we, um, how we organize for people like, but Navalny is Navalny. My point, I, I think I'm, my hard line is about, I'm against anonymity. Mm. Because um, this can create these pylons, which are terrifying if you're at the wrong end of them, in particular, if you're in a bad way. Now, listen, you know, I, one of my psychiatrists, um, did a quote my, uh, I, got, uh, um, I spent some time um, in 2019 in Italy, and my then flatmate loved quoting this from my psychiatrist, which was that Mr. Sweeney was a robust and resilient character. But nevertheless, under immense stress, anyone can crack. And that's true. And I cracked a little bit. So I feel that that, that um, was enhanced by this. So that I feel that there, um, my, my single point is that we've got to end anonymity, which means that people own what they say. Right. And therefore, the moment you do that, you don't want your mum, your loved ones, your partners, your kids... Um, to find out you're um, a bit of a fucking Nazi or you're being pointlessly cruel to somebody. Right. Um, uh, and I, uh, um, and I, and I, um, so that's, so that's where I, um, I, I net out on this. Yeah. And- the, the, that section that, that law scares me if it goes away, because what will happen to all the people that, that are independent journalists now that youtube has people that make a living off youtube and and publishing all their content there now that youtube is has to protect its own ass from a barrage of millions of lawsuits from what any one of their creators could create and publish on their platform i have a feeling that would effectively i mean i don't see how it couldn't put a company like youtube out of business well i feel so I don't want those voices to be silenced. I want those voices not to be anonymous. Right. Um, um, which, um, and if you end um, the namelessness, uh, because I'm struggling after too much red wine to say anonymous properly, oh, I did it. Um, but, um, if you end anonymity, you prevent that. But also, I think that the big tech, uh, big tech have made a lot of money, and that they could spend more money on, on policing what they're of doing. Course. They could prevent this from doing this. Now, my son's a social worker, and he's um, concerned that um, the 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 amount of, um, for example, child porn material out there is way bigger than the the efforts that Google, uh, Facebook, uh, etc. Um, are making in terms of uh, stopping that. Yeah, it seems like with all the money they generate, they could there could be. I mean, obviously, it can't come from them because they're obviously not going to. Are they going to regulate themselves? There has to be a third party that that regulates them, right? If I was them, I would start. Reg- I would start 
if I was them, I would start spending big money on doing it myself, get some cutouts, get a, a, a fancy board of good people who know stuff and, um, and, and get free speech, and, but also get common sense. And at the same time, I do that because otherwise people like me um, will, um, will... Create anonymous end, accounts. Yeah, we'll end up legislating. So we'll, um, I, I want to see laws ending anonymous accounts. I would, so, but it makes You're held sense. accountable. Yes, I want accountability. I don't want silence. And I, and I get that. Listen, you know, I spent eight days in North Korea and I wrote a book about it, North Korea Undercover. And, you know, you heard what I was saying about Putin and Trump. It's because of a lack of sound criticism in Putin's world and in Trump's world that they failed. Um, um, they lost their... Um, uh, their suppleness um, and they may and they paid for that so but I believe in free speech but I don't believe in anonymous hate speech I don't want to see silencing but I think you can do this I think that's that's a fixable thing um, yeah we, I totally we, agree that we, we retain it listen I my career is um since I left the BBC I mean my um I went to um, a radio station, LBC Global, but basically it used to be called the London Broadcasting Corporation, which is a fun, lively station in London. And they're the people who put out my podcast. And it's because of the, um, of the uh, you know, exciting stuff that this podcast on Gillian Maxwell has, it, it's had 2.3 million downloads. So, I am a beneficiary of the new world information order. I'm not against it, but I want some rules and I don't like anonymity. Now, what drew your interest to Robert Maxwell and his daughter? Initially? So I met Robert Maxwell when I was a boy. Really? Yeah. Um, not when I was a boy. When I was, How old are you? I'm 33. Right, I would have been um, twenty-eight, something like this. I was a cover. Of, I was a freelance reporter in London, and I was doing a piece about the Royal Rat Pack, um, the ghastly um, um, tabloid newspapers who used to harry, um, I menace members of the royal family, and I came away from doing this story feeling a bit sorry for the royal family. And not liking these people. In the middle of doing this, there was a charity event, I think if memory serves, at Great Ormond Street Hospital, a kids' hospital in London. There's Robert Maxwell and there's Princess Diana. And Robert Maxwell was laying on the schmaltz and there was something sickening and wrong about him. Then um, what happened was, uh, I, uh, you know, I was fascinated by him and I can remember... Um, in the summer 1991, he died on November the 5th, 1991. I proposed to the editor of The Observer, my then newspaper, can I investigate Robert Maxwell? No way. Like the editor, Donald Trelford, looked at me as if I'd offered him a fucking cow pat. A cow pat is, you know what a cow pat is, yeah? Yeah. The, what's weird with American English is that every now and then everything goes wrong and you don't understand. <laughs> There's it. a few words I don't understand, like thick and... Uh... Uh, thick it means stupid 
Watching yeah. you and Sean talk for two hours, I, there was a couple of moments where I was like, what the fuck are they talking about? Because there's some <laughs> words. <laughs> but Sean's, uh, Sean, uh, yeah, Sean's from with, so basically he's from pretty, uh, I was brought up in South Manchester for five years and he witnesses North of Manchester um, and way rougher than where I was in Cheshire so that we, we can roughly understand each other because there's a regional, like uh, Britain's so small, but actually the, the amount of accents are going on. So that you would know that I'm considerably posher than Sean is. I'm not posh. I'm no lord or anything like it. But Sean is, you know, anyway, never mind. Uh, you were hilarious. Watching you roast Sean was one of the funniest things I've seen in a while. <laughs> He's from, um, he looks... He did look like a bouncer in the strip club in the 1970s with the kind of like slightly naff cheap, cheap suit and the waistcoat, like 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 the defendant, you know, yeah. on, on a kind of serious charge. On the other hand, Sean is funny and likable, and he's you know, he's been to prison for something he did do, but he survived it and he's got his sense of humor and his love of life. And so there's something uh, essentially very likable about him though he's also a bit dodgy you know as i left i checked my wallet <laughs> yeah oh yeah no he was the guy he wasn't the bouncer in the nightclub he was the guy that sat outside the bathroom and then and then sold you little bat little baggies yeah 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 yeah. would you like uh, would you like some perfume fuck off yeah. uh, <laughs> what did he go he went to prison for um ecstasy or something yeah yeah like. yeah he yeah. ran an ecstasy essentially like an ecstasy ring like an empire in arizona yeah. like anyway never mind um, <laughs> so all right uh what were we talking about we're talking about maxwell yeah so there was something about maxwell that, that um that i knew was wrong and i couldn't do the story for my paper because because he threatened to sue everybody all the time so he was he used um, the libel laws in a disgraceful way. Then what happened was that he um, he ended up falling off his yacht. Um, uh, just moving a cable around because otherwise we're going to run out of gas. And uh, he fell off his yacht, yacht called the Lady Chalem. And it was November the 5th, 1991. And I, at that time, I was a war reporter for the Observer, and I was commuting between northern Iraq and Yugoslavia as it was cracking up. And I just come back from the siege of Dubrovnik, where, and I'd been reporting this story from March. So for six, seven months, I've been seeing a lovely country called Yugoslavia tear itself apart. People die. And in Dubrovnik, we went to the hospital and there was a little boy, I'll never forget this, who was, he had salt and pepper hair, um, just like my boy Sam at that age. Um, and he'd been hit with a, a shell fragment, which had gone near his groin, but thank God it hit his upper leg, not his groin. But it was an this triggered my son my memory my thinking me thinking about my son and i started to weep uncontrollably now 
And the doctor who was with me said, you know, you should stop doing this work. And, and I wanted to say, no, listen, I've seen people with their heads blown off and it hasn't made me cry. But this has got to me because this kid looks like my son as I was crying. So I had to get out. And I actually got out by hiding in a lady's toilet on a ferry. Men weren't allowed to leave Dubrovnik lest they be fighters. And even though I had a, um, a kind of UN press card, it didn't matter. The, the ship's captain wouldn't let me go. And I stole back onto the ship, hid in the ladies' toilet, got to Serbia, the other side, and ran away. And before the Serb cops could work out who I was, I got into a taxi and fucked off. And I got home. Um, and I got home. It's bonfire night. I think my son opens the door and, uh, and he said, and he shoots me with his fingers, bang, bang, you're dead. Um, I, I wouldn't let them have toy guns because of my experience. Right. And what he used to do is make toy guns out of toast. But nevertheless. Um, toast? Yeah. Um, that's a British thing. That's where you put a bread and a toaster. Yeah. Okay. I just can't yeah. imagine a gun made out of toast. You know, so what you do, well, like, if your dad bans you from having any kind of toy gun, yeah. what you do is you cut the shape of a revolver out of toast. <laughs> It's creative. Yeah, it's a kind of NRA at five years old. Um, <laughs> I still, I mean, you could have, you know, dinosaurs and everything with, uh, you know, gobble you up. That's okay, but not guns. Right, right. My, and I and I stick by that. Um, anyway, um, I'm. So we go to the supermarket. Um, my 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 then misses. Um, and we hear on the news, BBC Radio, Robert Maxwell has fallen off his yacht. And, and the, it says the supermarket has got a roof car park. Uh, I'm on the roof car park. And my missus says, well, come on, let's go shopping. And I said, well, I've got to listen to this. <laughs> and the thing is, I'd only just recovered from crying my eyes out from seeing a kid looking like my son. And so the thing is i couldn't go anywhere because i was in bits and i couldn't do this story and it kind of hurt me so 30 years on i leave the bbc i want to do a podcast i go to lbc and i say i'd like to do hunting jelen because she's gone she's gone missing and um they say yes but it takes them six months to say yes partly because of an election, then the virus hits, it's all a mess, but finally they say yes. And they say yes on July the 1st, or rather I signed the contract on July the 1st uh, last year, 2020, and she's arrested, and the, the title of the podcast is Hunting Jelen, I'm going to find Jelen, right? That's what I'm going to do. And on July the 2nd, the FBI find her in um, New Hampshire. And I phone up the boss of podcast, Chris Baum at LBC, and I say, I've signed the contract. I've signed the contract. <laughs> I just said, John, it's okay. It's still fascinating how she did this, how she hid, how it worked. And the moment I, um, I then go and see, I think the first thing I do is I see the former editor of Private Eye, which is our wonderful satirical magazine in Britain, Richard Engrams, who's an old friend of mine, I've 
I've um, um, done like, some little bits and pieces for Private Eye since the 80s. I've been to Private Eye lunches. And Robert Maxwell used to sue Private Eye all the time. So often uh, that Richard Ingram, who wrote the stories, who was the editor, can't remember how often he was sued. But um, he he hated Maxwell when he was alive, but he feels sorry for Julianne Maxwell because her father was such a monster. So the traditional, so the story of Julianne Maxwell is a dark fairy story, the darkest, one of the darkest you'll ever hear. And the thing about the story is that the traditional version of it is seen in a Netflix um, Filthy Rich is there was only one monster, and the monster is Jeffrey Epstein. My version in Hunting Shalane, uh, the podcast, and uh, later this year I'm going to write a book uh, about her called Probably Hunting Shalane after the trial is over, suggests that there's at least, well, there's more than one monster. The second monster is her father who was a grossly abusive man, who, according to his own wife, Betty Maxwell, who loved him for 40 years more, said he um, took sadistic pleasure in humiliating the people closest to him, his family. He bullied psychologically his family horribly. He also um, may, and and the evidence for this is not clear, it's not clear, but there is a woman with mental health issues who had an infatuation with Robert Maxwell, and Maxwell liked her as well. I don't know the nature of their relationship, but this woman's called Eleanor Berry, and she says at the age of nine, in a book, she says that Jeanne Maxwell showed her various implements of beating, like um, um, a piece of leather, a ruler, a cane went swish as you moved it in the air. And and Jelaine, age nine, said to Eleanor Berry, Daddy's nice because he lets me choose what he's going to beat me with. I don't know whether that happened, um, but it's a fact that Robert Maxwell was an emotional bully, a psychological bully, who took, as his wife said, sadistic pleasure in humiliating his family. So my version of this dark story, dark fairy story says there isn't one monster. It goes beyond the, the Netflix version and Filthy Rich. There are two monsters. There is Jeffrey Epstein and there is Robert Maxwell. The question um, that I wrestle with is is Yelen Maxwell the third monster? Mm. Have you have you tried reaching out to her directly to talk to her from the through the prison bureau? I've uh, not through. Uh, she has a um, a, a PR man, um, and I've approached him while I was making the podcast. It's available, by the way, on Spotify, and Apple, and all the usual places. It's called Hunting Yelen. Um, I pronounce Jelen Jelen. Americans pronounce Jelen Gillen. I thought it was Jizlane. Uh, Jizlane is wrong. Um, uh, that was and, a joke. Yeah, yeah, uh, and a bad one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> Sorry, the tequila's getting to me. Yeah, 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 yes. Drink advisably. <laughs> so, um, the so uh, and and and, and uh, the thing is that I think she was certainly a victim because her father was a cruel bully psychologically. I don't know whether this story about the beating is true, but but it, it kind of fits other stories, so it's grim. However, I think that you can be a victim and also a perpetrator. And so the question is, if you have been abused yourself or have been mucked around psychologically, does that lessen your defences? Does it make it more likely that you could abuse others? And I spoke to, um, in the podcast in episode six, I spoke to a therapist who deals, who lives in LA, who deals with victims of the Church of Scientology all the time. And she said it's commonplace for victims to then turn into become perpetrators. And the problem is if you're raised inside a dark environment, then that becomes normal. Do you think because of her child, her alleged childhood trauma, do you think that it's possible that she possibly had, how do I, no moral compass? Yes. I think that is, um, that's where I sit on this. I feel that she didn't know what was right and wrong, where the boundaries were. This is common. Now, Betty, her mum, who loved Robert Maxwell, who said that for too long, all of us help perpetuate his, quote, cult personality. Now, Robert Maxwell didn't run a cult like Scientology, where you have suckers on their knees paying for some kind of um, spiritual enlightenment because he had his businesses, which were working much of the time, and that was the source of the money, but kind of a bit like Putin, um, a bit like others, he didn't have enough people around him saying, don't do this, boss, this is bad. Um, and if you've got a very, very powerful personality, and this guy was off the wall, then, then what you create is a kind of cult. The problem for Jelen was that she was brought up inside a cult a kind of a cult. So when she meets, so uh, her father dies, my view is he fell off the yacht deliberately. He committed suicide. He wasn't pushed. That's my view. Others disputed. But when she lost one monster, she went to Manhattan and found a second Jeffrey Epstein, mm. who was the same kind of guy, brilliant, poor, made a ton of money, incredibly manipulative and abusive. And his thing was abusing these poor kids, more child and women again and again and again. And the allegation against Yelen is that she made that happen. She was a handmaiden to that abuse. She denies it. She denies all six charges against her. And to be fair and proper, we've got to wait until the trial this summer when we'll hear for the first time her defense. Do you think it will actually go to trial or do you think she could take a plea? 
I don't know. I don't think that there is anything very much for her to plea on. Because traditionally what you do is you plead to give up somebody else. But when Epstein killed himself, and I believe that he killed himself. You do believe he killed himself? Yeah, I can set that out uh, at great length. Um, but I won't because uh, we're two hours uh, pretty much already. I'll set it out briefly. Okay. There's no, um, there's a friend of mine called Chris Atkins who's written a very funny book called A Bit of a Stretch. And he was a former Panorama producer, freelance, who ended up um, in a tax scam and got done by the British tax man and went to prison um, sentence for five years and spent nine months in Wandsworth, which is a terrible nick in London. Routinely, sex offenders and worst of all, paedophiles were abused in prison and, according to his own personal observation, prison officers didn't bother check up on paedophiles because they wanted them to die. So that my friend Chris, it's a British prison, not an American prison, but this is not a conspiracy theory. This is observed experience of prison culture. A convicted paedophile like Jeffrey Epstein back in again, back in again, for greater and better um, charges of paedophilia is going to have a horrible time in prison from everybody, including the prison guards. So I think it's very likely that they didn't bother check on them, that they didn't care. I think that Epstein was a clever and manipulative man, but also he realized he'd run out of road and there was no good defense for what he'd done. And therefore he was looking at life and this was a way of saying, fuck you. And he was that kind of guy who would do that. Thirdly, I would say that there was, a, um, there was a pathologist hired by Jeffrey Epstein's brother, who I think is called Dr. Baden, who went on Fox to say that his, uh, there's a bone there right. called hyoid bone was broken. And that is evidence of murder not suicide. So being a good reporter, I checked this with an American pathologist, um, and it's in the podcast, who set out the evidence um, by, by going through something like 168 definite suicides by hanging, and found that two thirds of the cases, the higher bone was broken. Really? Uh, Yes, really, and the older the the, um, the deceased, the more likely the hyoid bone would be broken. So, when I say that Jeffrey Epstein killed himself, I'm not arguing with Donald Trump for a gag. I'm setting out the the known evidence which is number one there is a culture inside prisons in britain and the united states and around the world that hates pedophiles mm -hmm. the prison guards should have been checking on him they didn't because they didn't fucking care number two chris says that the prison estate in british prisons and american prisons 
is always rubbish. The CCTV cameras didn't work, that's normal. Nothing works in prison because when you complain, nobody gives a fuck because you're a prisoner. Number three, the physiological evidence that points to murder is rubbish. The physiological evidence, i.e. the, sorry, the pathological evidence points to suicide, not murder. And the advance of the suicide version is not supported by science. If you doubt me, listen to my podcast, Hunting Julem. Final question. If you were to be able to sit down with Ghislaine, Ghislaine right now, what would you ask her? My question would be, did Robert Maxwell fuck you up? Why that question? Did her father cause her to be where she is now? Because he was an abusive personality. There's, there's a, a you can you don't have to go where this woman Eleanor Berry goes. One of her brothers, Ian Maxwell, said that when he heard that his father had died, he felt both fear of what what to do next, but also a sense of exhilaration that this alpha male had gone from his life. So you can just use that to say, did he? So it's possible. I don't know where it goes, this court case. I'm fascinated to watch it. Um, if, if I can, I'll try and get to New York. Um, but um, we'll see. The there's uh, i'm sorry i'm going on pointless oh no i'm going on for a reason because this is um this troubles me i don't know what's going to happen at the moment there is it seems three witnesses to abuse and the charges relate primarily to 1994 to 1997 so the stuff we all know about all the stuff for example that's in the netflix documentary Virginia Roberts Jufre, she meets them in 2000. She meets Prince Andrew in 2001. Conveniently not a part of her charges. N- uh, not in the charges. Now, conveniently is a loaded adverb, and one should always avoid loaded adverbs. Okay, noted. They may have done that. The feds may have done it is because they don't want to put Virginia Roberts Jufre in the witness box lest she get something wrong, which is not to say that she's right fundamentally. But abuse victims often make poor witnesses. That's an argument that's been put to me. I don't know. My judgment about what she says about Prince Andrew and her, I think um, that, um, well, Prince Andrew can't explain the photograph. Virginia Roberts can. I think Virginia Roberts is telling the truth, but for whatever reason, the feds aren't going there. There's a qualification for this, which is that they're going there on the, um, um, they've also charged Gillen with perjury, and it's possible they can take some of the perjury stuff and chuck it, but that's, they're not 
they're being careful about the timeline because I think they want a conviction. Had Epstein still been alive, Gillen's route to a, a soft sentence would have been giving the dirt on Jeffrey Epstein. Once he died, I think he killed himself. Then that possibility for a plea, the, the value of the plea to the feds has gone. So okay. what she's offering. What she could do is say, I was a victim of Jeffrey Epstein. I was also a victim of my father. And I'm terribly sorry. But I was not in sound mind when I did this. Her problem with that is that she should have said that the moment Jeffrey Epstein died. Mm. If I was her, I would have done it the second he died and I would have given a press conference saying, it's the first time I can talk about this, but I feel desperately sorry for the victims, Virginia Roberts included, but I got this entirely wrong because I was manipulated by this man and it's only now that he's dead that I can talk about this. Instead, she disappeared. That's a big problem for her. As I said, she denies any wrongdoing. She denies all the charges against her. And fair fair. I believe passionately in the rule of law and I believe in innocence or proven guilty. So we're going to have to wait and see what she says and what her defence is. Um, I feel sorry for her. I do. But it doesn't mean... I don't think, um, I think the evidence against her is damning. Um, I'm fascinated, as I said, to see what's going to happen. But I do feel sorry for her. She's in a horrible place, in an awful prison. And this horrible stuff from her past is coming back to her. At the same time, I also feel desperately sorry for the victims. Virginia Roberts Ufre is the most famous I believe what she says. I do. Um, and I think people are responsible for their actions. Anyway, we have to, um, we'll see how it plays. John, I can't thank you enough for doing this, man. I, I really appreciate it. I'm a huge fan of your work. Your, your, your work is amazing. And thank you again. Where can people, I'll obviously link all of your stuff below, your Twitter, uh, a link to your podcast. Um, anything else? So there's my uh, there's the Amazon book page, um, okay. which is uh, basically the Church of Fear on Scientology, North Korea undercover, Elephant Moon, the book about uh, the elephant men rescuing people in Burma. I don't know why I mentioned that, and the Useful Idiot with John Gray, the wonderful British philosopher, yeah. said it was his book of the year in the New Statesman, his best yet. He said I paid him a kebab to do that. That's a joke, by the way. Um, <laughs> The um, what else? Uh, the YouTube film. If you put in uh, John Sweeney, Donald Trump, Trump and the Mob, that's up there. Okay. Five million views. Scientology and Me. Uh, the shout me screaming. Forty second clip. I'll do it again so people remember. You are not there for the beginning of the interview. <laughs> I love it, man. Hey, if you ever find your way back here in the states. 
I would love to uh, get you down here to Florida so we could do another one in person. That would be amazing. Yeah, yeah. Well, what would uh, I'd do that? And then we'd go on a pub crawl or whatever. Yeah, let's go on a pub crawl through downtown Clearwater and we can go grab a drink right across <laughs> from the Jack Tar Hotel. Yeah, well, my, my, my hope would be I'd really like to get arrested by the Clearwater Police Department. Um, and... I mean, what would the problem is? You'd have to look after me because what I'd do is I'd get too pissed and I'd start trying to urinate. I've, by the way, this has reminded me of my um, somebody I admired very much was a, a guy called Sean Lonsdale, who uh, Scientology hated, and he used to film them and they filmed him, and I interviewed him. And while I was interviewing him, they turned up to try and monster him. And there's this, it's all in this uh, film Scientology and me, mm-hmm. and. Um, the, they accuse him of being a sexual deviant and he he, he was uh, openly gay and had been caught by the cops having sex with a gay man and um, you know it didn't they turned him into a sort of um, a deviant he wasn't he was a brave and courageous American Scientology when he died he I'm afraid I, I think he killed himself and Scientology said that he um, was a horrible person and and i did a a piece of bbc radio uh, to say well for me he was a bit of a hero so um if i can get to florida um let's go on the razzle dazzle let's do it and let us raise a glass in memory absolutely john longstaff yes sir thank you so much john let's keep in touch bye bye